How many of you have ever heard of the puffer fish? Anybody? Okay, quite a few, quite a few. This is a, it's such an intelligent congregation, I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah, there's this fish that's called the puffer fish. Now, if you know anything about the puffer fish, when you see it in its unpuffed state, it's a pretty small and, and unassuming fish. Uh, it just kind of does its thing, but the moment that it's sort of riled or a predator approaches it, then it does something like this. It puffs up into this great big ball so that whatever predator is coming to attack it, it won't be able to get it into its mouth. However, the puffiness is not the only defense that the puffer fish has. It's also full of this deadly toxin. It's actually 1,200 times more powerful than cyanide. It can kill 30 people. So if whatever fish that's deciding to attack it would decide that its puffiness is not a strong deterrent, well, the puffer fish will proceed to poison whatever attacker may be coming against it. You and I share a trait of the puffer fish. We may not swell ourselves up with air and water, but whenever we come under attack, whenever we may feel defensive, whenever we may feel a little less than, this other thing can come and it can fill us up and it can puff us up and it can cause us to swell. It's this thing called pride. And pride can come in and it can do to us something similar to what you see happening to the puffer fish right there. Not only does it swell us up, but it can be just as toxic as this venom that's in the puffer fish as well. Because see, what pride can do is it can come and it can poison relationships. It can poison marriages when you treat your spouse with contempt or that they're less than. It can, it can poison friendships, especially if you're taking pride in something that your friend can see so clearly that you're not even aware of. So it is this toxic substance that can be so insidious and so sneaky sometimes that we don't even know that it's there. The former president of Princeton Theological Seminary, a guy by the name of Jonathan Edwards, uh, he was an incredibly godly man. He was also the president of Princeton, and it was a seminary at the time. It's not now. But he came up with seven ways, he said, that pride can deceptively be in our lives and we don't even know it. So he came up with these. There's only six here. I'll explain that in a moment. But he said one is fault-finding. It's just this tendency to color someone purely by their faults, the things that you perceive as being wrong with them. He said it can also be a harsh spirit, that you treat other people poorly or because you look down on them for whatever reason you think you may be superior, so you don't use a gentle spirit, use a harsh spirit. Another is superficiality. This was especially convicting to me. It's when you uh, perceive, rather you're more concerned about how you're being perceived by other people than you are the actual sin in your own heart. And I know personally I can walk away from situations wondering how I came across, wondering what they're thinking about me, wondering these things more so than I'm even concerned about the, uh, the, the sin that I'm carrying around. 
Another is presumption before God. That you're coming before God uh, either so full of yourself that you forget you're talking to God in an almost assumed state of, hey, I'm okay. Or there's another extreme that I'm coming before God thinking that somehow my sins are not covered by his blood. And I presume a state uh, before him not in grasping grace. So two extremes there. The other is defensiveness. When someone brings up a rebuke or a, a correction to you, you immediately come back at them with defensiveness. What, what do you mean? What do you say? And another is desperation for attention, which practically speaks for itself. You want to be noticed. You want others to know you're there. You need for people to pay attention to you. All of these things can just puff us up. Sometimes people see this so easily in us, and we have a hard time seeing it in ourselves. Then there's another deadly, deadly aspect of pride, and it's self-dependence. Self-dependence will actually render the Christian, we're going to look at this today, powerless in this life. Because the power of God can be void in the life of someone who finds themselves to be self-dependent. So see, I need the power of God working in my life. And pride, as you're going to see, can render that power void. So the question we're putting out there today, what we'll be talking about, is how can I be a humble disciple of Christ? How can I be a humble disciple of Christ and we're going to jump into the book of Mark today. We'll be in Mark chapter 9, uh, verses 14 through 27. I'm going to start there. We'll be looking at some more verses after that. But if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 27. <coughs> when they came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and experts in the law arguing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, they were amazed and ran at once and greeted him. He asked them, what are you arguing about with them? A member of the crowd said to him, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able to do so. He answered them. You unbelieving generation, how much longer must I be with you? How much longer must I endure you? Bring him to me. So they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell on the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. But if you are able to do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Then Jesus said to him, if you are able, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the boy cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Now when Jesus saw that a crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. It shrieked threw him into terrible convulsions and came out. 
The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he is dead. But Jesus gently took his hand and raised him to his feet. And he stood up. Thank you. You may be seated. So this morning, we're starting a new series uh, in the book of Mark. And we'll actually be in the book of Mark up to the time of Easter. So we're beginning today this journey. And this morning, we're going to see four things, really. You'll see an outline. It uh, should be in your bulletin. We'll look at two consequences of pride as they arise here uh, in a larger section of Mark. We just read the first um, 15 or so verses. We'll be looking at some more verses in a moment. We'll also look at two ways to correct those consequences. So we'll go consequence, correction, consequence, correction. So we enter into this story, and we're here in the book of Mark. And we're jumping in midstream. And the book of Mark could really be divided into three sections. The first section, uh, roughly chapters uh, 1 through 7, we see the people discerning who Jesus is. He's walking around. He's establishing himself as the Son of God. People are seeing him exercising power over nature and demons and sickness. In the second part, chapters 9 and 10, uh, we see the disciples with Jesus journeying with him on the way to Jerusalem. <clears throat> and then there in the last section, which is where we'll end up, we see the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. So it's divided up in those three sections. And one of the things I love about the book of Mark is how easily we can put ourselves in the story journeying alongside Christ. And what the author does is he so vividly puts the disciples in the forefront for us to see just how screwed up they really are. We see their failings. We see the things they intended to do as well as their successes. But there's a lot of focus on how human these disciples are and how much of ourselves we can see in these disciples. So here then in chapter 9, and in those verses I just read to you, 14 through 27, we see this failure of the disciples. Um, nine were there at the present uh, moment. So three disciples and Jesus had been up on a mountain together. And three disciples, Peter, James, and John, had just seen Christ transfigured into this glorious body. So they just had this amazing experience in the prior chapter. And now Jesus and these three disciples are walking up on this scene. And they saw a crowd gathered there, including teachers of the law. Now the teachers of the law had been after Jesus. They'd been looking for him to mess up. Soon they'll be talking about a way to kill Jesus. They'll be looking for a fault that severe. So all these people are present, and then a man reveals that his son was under the control of an evil spirit, a spirit that was causing all of these physical um, manifestations, foaming at the mouth, rolling around, having convulsions. And he brought his son to Jesus, and then a man reveals an important fact in verse 18. He says that whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and becomes rigid. And then he says this. He said, I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able to do so. <clears throat> now just put yourself in the shoes of this father for a second. Imagine the heartbreak 
he'd had his hopes pinned on what he'd heard about the power of these disciples and the power of Jesus. So in, in that faith, he brings him, and what happens? We have this fail. The disciples couldn't do what the father had hoped, so his, no doubt his faith is rattles. His, his hopes have been dashed. And then we see this very emotional outburst of Jesus in verse 19. He answered them, You unbelieving generation! How much longer must I be with you? How much longer must I endure you? Bring him to me. He said, just, just bring him to me. And he immediately pins this problem on a lack of belief. Now, he's especially frustrated with these disciples because he's been discipling. God himself was discipling these men. He called them, brought them to himself. He'd done all these miracles. He'd empowered them, as a matter of fact, to go out and do miracles. And what happened? Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> they fail. So he dialogues with the father some more. And the father then makes this impassioned plea in verse 22. But if you are able to do anything, speaking to Jesus, have compassion on us and help us. To which Jesus responds, if you are able. All things are possible to the one who believes. Then this father has this wonderful response in verse 24. I believe. Help my unbelief. It is a wonderful, wonderful prayer. I believe. Help me. I'm not perfect in my belief. Lord, help me. So we have this father who, unlike the disciples, the ones who'd been following Jesus all this time, the ones who had seen Jesus' miracles, at least this father has an awareness of this lack of sufficient faith. You know, often in Mark, what you see, and you'll see it more as we go along, is the disciples are present there in a given situation. But then these other characters are present as well. And it's actually the way the other characters are acting that is the response that Jesus is looking for. And you see that contrasted against the mistake that the disciples are making. So you oftentimes are looking for these contrasts in Mark between the characters that are present and how they're responding to the way the disciples have just responded. And that's what you're seeing here. Um, the disciples should have had an awareness of their own insufficiency, but they didn't. But you see it in this father. So then what happens? Jesus rebukes this evil spirit. The spirit comes out, and he heals this boy. And then we come to verses 28 and 29. Then after he went into the house, his disciples asked him. <laughs> they wanted to get Jesus. They didn't want to reveal their own mistake. Jesus, can we talk to you on the side? Can we just have a private conversation? They, so they went into a house where nobody could see him or hear him. And then they asked him privately, well, well why couldn't we cast it out? And what did he tell them? This kind can only come out by 
prayer. At no time during the unsuccessful attempt of these disciples, at no time when they failed, at no time when the crowds were gathered, did they ever decide, well, maybe we should stop and pray about this. It didn't occur to them. And this is why they failed. So then what happened? It was the prayer of the Father that allowed this demon to be removed. Now you think, well, they may be thinking, well, wait a second, he didn't pray. He just, he just had a conversation with God. Well, see, that's what prayer is. He was able to talk to Jesus face to face. I believe, help me with my unbelief. That was all it took. Then God exercised this demon. Now, the truth is the disciples have had previous successes. As a matter of fact, if you look back in Mark chapter 6, verse 13, it says they had cast out many demons. But something happened here. It appears then that Christ's disciples, and I'm going to say maybe it had something to do with their past successes, were so taken with their own authority that they thought they were the ones that had the power to cast out these demons. They had forgotten that the only way they were going to have any success was for the power of God to intervene in, in, in whatever situation that they were working in. They forgot that what they had to have to be successful was a complete and total dependence on God. But instead, they were kind of puffed up. Instead, they thought they could rely on themselves. Instead, they had developed a bit of pride in what they'd been able to accomplish in the past. So we see this first consequence. They were powerless. There was powerlessness in their attempt to exercise this demon. Disciples have no power on their own. It was true for the disciples then, and it's true for us as disciples today. And I like what this book, um, Reading Mark, it's by a man named Dowd. He says this about that fact. He says, God's power is not an impersonal force to be manipulated, but a gift to be prayed for. God's power is not an impersonal force to be manipulated, but a gift to be prayed for. I am not going to bend God to my will. Uh, this gift is available to me through prayer. So you have to ask yourself the question, what is it that gets in the way of me praying? Uh, if it's so essential, if it's so key, if it is the way that we as Christians, that we as disciples of Jesus Christ show dependence on God, what is it that stops us from having a conversation with the Almighty? Because what I hope you can see in this passage is that something did not happen that desperately needed to happen because there was a lack of prayer. Now that fact alone can haunt me. Something was left undone that could have happened simply because it was not taken to God in prayer. What could be happening in your own life because you are not taking something to God in prayer? What is not happening in the life of our church because we're not taking it to God in prayer? What is it that could be happening in Sheridan that is not happening because we're not taking it to the Lord in prayer? 
you know, I'll say that one of the biggest challenges in my Christian walk has been prayer because there is this mystery to prayer. There was a time in my life when I thought to myself, well, wait a second. God is sovereign. God is going to do what God is going to do. So therefore, if God is going to do what God is going to do, well, then why am I going to pray about it? And I would put God in this box of my own imagination. I would put prayer in this own box of my imagination, thinking I had it all figured out. No. Let me tell you something. We always bend our logic to the Word of God. If we have a theology that doesn't work, then it's because it's not aligned with Scripture. Um, clearly, from this passage, something would have happened had they prayed that did not happen because there was a lack of prayer. So how do I gain power? By being humble and depending on God through prayer. It's really straightforward. Christians have to lift their requests to God. I can't help but wonder how many marriages are suffering because there's a lack of prayer. How many of our kids are suffering because there's a lack of prayer? How many of us are unwise because we're not praying regularly for wisdom? Is pride and self-confidence getting in the way of our prayer lives? Um, now, this certainly doesn't mean that God is going to give or take away everything because we are or are not praying about it. However, I would hate to think that some wonderful thing like this man and the exorcism of his, this demon from his son, I would hate to think that there's some wonderful blessing out there that we've not yet experienced because it hasn't been lifted up to God in prayer. See, I don't want to miss out on anything. I want to lift up my request to God because I want his power evident. So what gets in the way? You know, I, I actually came across this guy in Canada. <clears throat> He's a businessman. And he was talking about how much trouble he was having accomplishing his goals and things in life. And so he actually came up, instead of writing a to-do list, he came up with a not-to-do list that in any given day he was going to write out and say, these are the things I'm not going to do today. And sometimes I wonder, is that what we need? <clears throat> when I think about the things that get in the way of me doing the things I need to be doing, it's, it comes down to Facebook. It comes down to things like Candy Crush. It comes down to all these little things, TV, the Internet. What if we came up with a list of things that we weren't going to do in a given day because we weren't going to let it block that which we so desperately need. Something like prayer. Something like being in community with other believers. Being in the Word of God. So maybe we need a not-to-do list. He actually called them his anti-goals and said that coming up with that list has made his life immeasurably better. So then depend on God through prayer. That's our first consequence. That's our first correction. Then we move on to this next section. And we get this peek inside the mind of the disciples. What they're thinking about, the things that they've just went, witnessed. And I want to skip down to verses 33 and 34. It says, Then they came to Capernaum. After Jesus was inside the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? 
But they were silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. <coughs> I love it when Jesus asks questions. It's not like he doesn't already know the answers. But he knows what he's doing. He's convicting them. And they, you see their reaction. They're quiet because they were immediately convicted about what they've been talking about. He heard us. Now, matters of rank were important to the Jews. So you see in things like wedding feasts, some people would have the seat of honor and some people were not. And this kingdom that God's bringing in, they're wondering well, who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. Who's going to have this place of honor? So they're wondering who's going to have it. But see, in the process of doing that, they are totally missing it. Uh, and they would prove it that they missed it once again in verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following who? He was not following us. Who does that guy think he is? Out there casting out demons. <laughs> well, what's going on here? I mean, we've got this guy casting out demons in the name of Jesus. Well, that seems like an all right thing to do to me. But what did the disciples try and do? Well, they tried to stop him. Why? Well, he's not following us. They could have been happy about this. They could have been happy that the mission of Christ was going forward. But no, they've got this complex. And instead of being inclusive and humble about it, they're being exclusive and prideful about it. And once again, they're revealing their pride and their self-interest. And they feel like they're being supplanted, like they're being threatened by this guy. So the disciples are forgetting something very important in regard to gaining position. And we see this in our next consequence. That without Christ, they are positionless. Disciples have no position of their own. They're trying to protect and earn position, but they are positionless. Well, the question is then, well, how do we gain position? I want to go back now and look at the verses that are inserted between the ones that we were just looking at. I want to go back to verses 30 to 32. It says, They went out from there and passed through Galilee. This was just after the episode with the man and his son who was demon-possessed. But Jesus did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching the disciples and telling them, The Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Again, I love these disciples because I see so much of myself here in their misunderstanding. The disciples still don't get that this mission that they are on with Christ, not unlike the mission that you and I are on with Christ, is a mission of suffering. That's what kind of mission they're on. It's not a mission of self-aggrandizement. It's not a mission of getting to be popular. And what they don't realize that are they themselves are going to have to go the way of Christ. All but one is going to have to go to martyrdom. But they're still not getting that yet. See, they think this kingdom is going to be ushered in while they're still alive. And they don't yet understand what's going to have to transpire. Then in verses 35 and 36... Uh, Jesus is going to make it very plain for them 
And now he says to them, right after this conversation about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom, this is what Jesus says to them. After he sat down, he called the twelve and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the last of all and the servant of all. And he took a little child and had him stand among them, taking him in his arms. He said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So how do we gain position in God's kingdom? By humbly serving the least. Humbly serving the least. This is a drastic reversal in these conventional values that these disciples had come up with. And it turns their desire of greatness that the disciples had, it turns it on its head. And accepting Jesus' mission means serving the last and the least. Now, who then classifies as the least? It's the person who is not going to be of benefit to you so that you'll never have mixed motivations in why you're serving that person. That's who the last and the least is. It's the person who is not going to be of benefit to you. So... What gets in the way of serving the least of these? Now, I mentioned earlier that Jonathan Edwards had proposed there were seven ways that pride can deceptively come into our life. So now I want to give you the seventh. It's neglecting others. This was a painful quote. This is how, this is how Edwards perceives this as a point of pride. He said, pride prefers some people over others. It honors those who the world deems worthy of honor giving more weight to their words, their wants, and their needs. There's a thrill that goes through me when people with power acknowledge me. We consciously or unconsciously pass over the weak, the inconvenient, and the unattractive because they don't seem to offer us much. I can remember at times in my life just lusting over the accolades of people that I perceived as powerful. Wanting them to think I was something because of the inadequacy of what I perceive as Christ making me something. But this is the neglect of others. This is what stands in the way of serving the least. Is this pride that manifests itself in this neglect of other people. Now, um, fortunately, we have many opportunities for you to serve others, both here in our church and, and, and in Sheridan at large. So I did a little investigating into this. I did a little sniffing around. Turns out we have a children's ministry that is always looking for volunteers, teachers, workers in the nurseries, assistants. We've also got a youth ministry. By the way, Shane mentioned this a few weeks ago, that for a young teenager who was starting to take an interest in Christ, they need five adult fans. It used to be they thought that for every five teens, you needed one adult. Now they're thinking, no, for every one teen, you need five adults. So we've got opportunities in youth ministry for you to serve. We've got a mops ministry that needs child care workers. It would only be two times a month for a nine-month span. You could come in and you could be a, a child care worker in the mops. It stands for Mothers of Preschoolers, a fantastic outreach ministry through which uh, women here in our community who are 
many of which are unchurched, are coming to our church for community, for a devotion, to learn about Christ, and to receive the gospel. Legacy Pregnancy Center. They're looking for volunteers. They need things to go on, they, um, repairs to be made, cleaning to be done. They need snow removal around their facility. Um, they're also looking for mentors. Mentors for young women and young couples. Again, this is an opportunity to evangelize and share your faith with a terrified young person who's pregnant and is choosing this over having an abortion. There's also the Volunteers of America. They, too, are looking uh, for people to come in and help both in their facility. There's opportunities there. We also have senior saints from First Baptist Church that could use a visit, that could use a phone call, that could... Um, someone could let them know that they are not forgotten. So if any of these things are, you see as an opportunity, you can get involved. Oh, it's hard to see. There's a phone number there. Basically, you can call the church or email us. Um, it's office at fbcsheridanwy.org. That's office at fbcsheridanwy.org. The phone number there is 307 674-6693 We will get you in touch with the people you need to be in touch with in order to serve in any of these capacities. We've always got things uh, that need to be done. Opportunities abound. So putting this all together in a nutshell be a humble disciple first through prayer. Uh, make it a priority in your life. Don't miss out on something that God is going to do because we didn't pray about it. Please take the time to pray, and then also through service, serving the least and the last, people who could never be of benefit to you. That's who we are called to serve, those who can't repay your kindness. Then finally this morning in closing, what I would like to do is just take a few minutes, probably just a couple of minutes, to pray here uh, in silence. And what I'm going to ask you to do is just right there in your seat, we're just going to take about two minutes for you to lift up in prayer anything that may be burdening your heart. And if you're looking for something to pray for, I've put a few things on the screen here. Things that I would love to see us pray about for God's name to be exalted here and shared in, among other things. So let's take two minutes now and just there in the silence, just you and the Lord, take a few minutes to pray.
Lord, we want your power to be evident here. Father, convict us of our pride, our self-sufficiency, our lack of dependency on you. God, that we could ever do any good thing apart from you is an impossibility. God, I want your power to be manifested here at First Baptist Church of Sheridan. Lord, wherever it may be lacking, fill it. Forgive us, God. Forgive us of our sins. And Lord, I pray that we would make time daily to lift up our cares, our concerns, our marriages, our children, even our own spiritual walk to you in prayer. God, let us not keep anything, God, all the digital distractions in our life from being a distraction of approaching you in this holy and sacred way that's so essential to our walk. We ask it all in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Thank you all so much, and have a great day.